Hello and welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. We're very glad to have you here with us on our 13th episode as we look at Psalm 24. My name is Cameron and I live down here in cold and wet Launceston at the moment. And uh, yeah, cold weather's starting to wear a bit thin as I drive to school with it minus two outside. Still, a bit of warm fellowship and community, be it over distance and some fun discussion, makes everything just a little bit more bearable. Yeah, g'day, I'm Ken. Uh, I'm also in Launceston. Uh, The cold's one thing. Uh, I ride to and from work many days in the week, so I experience that. But uh, the thing that I notice most is the short days, and we've just had the shortest, June the 21st, so uh, I'm looking forward to the lengthening of the days. It seems to me it always takes longer uh, for the days to lengthen than it does for them to get short. But uh, again, Mm. um, some bright fellowship and discussion. Looking forward to it. And I'm Lachlan. It's not quite as cold here in Sydney where I live, but it is still a real blessing to have warm community to enjoy together. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Let's open with a prayer. Father God, we come to you longing for your presence amongst us and thankful for your blessings bestowed upon us. And we ask for your spirit to be with us as we discuss this psalm. Amen. Amen. Let's start by reading this week's psalm, Psalm 24. Locke, do you want to start and read the first six verses? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. We've nicely um, divided the psalm into what seem its two logical sections. Mm, It's quite a different psalm in tone to other psalms that we've looked at. Yeah, and I thought you did a really good job, Cam, to refrain from singing those last few verses. Am I right in thinking that they're a prominent part of Handel's Messiah? That's what I'm recalling, Locke. Yeah, well, I I know this psalm from a rendition by the group Sons of Korah and it's one of the best tunes I think and and it is a, it is a great great psalm you know just sort of raw praise uh, one thing which I, I'd really enjoy doing and we may save this for a future episode is pausing and just taking stock of, of the scope of uh, human experience the scope of re- religious experience covered in the psalms that we've discussed so far We've had psalms that respond to all sorts of personal experiences. This psalm doesn't seem to be one that, that's, that's drawn out of a particular or that provides commentary to a particular experience of the psalmist. He's just stating something that is. It really is a psalm directed, it seems to me, at worship, isn't it? Uh, worship for worship's sake, if you like, not worship yeah. arising out of any particular uh, experience. 
Now, I was going to ask you, Ken, in, in what sense the other Psalms are not worship, but but you qualified it, I think, very well. Yes, one gets the sense this the psalmist would imagine this psalm to be an appropriate psalm for all occasions. A bit like, a bit like now, who is it? It's uh, Oscar Wilde, isn't it? In um, the importance of being earnest, that the uh, Reverend Doctor Trausable has a sermon on the meaning of manner in the wilderness, which is suitable for any occasion. <laughs> well, interestingly, the. Um... I wondered, well, but what occasion might this be that would lead to this sort of worship? And the NRSV version that I've got here is uh, entrance into the temple. And the uh, NIV study Bible that I've turned up in suggests that this might have been uh, when the uh, uh, the ark was uh, brought into the temple. Right. Yes, well, that, that would fit. It's it's interesting, actually, looking at it in the context of the temple and independently, my wife, Melissa, had observed to me when I read the psalm with her that um, there's there's a a lot of uh, imagery, a lot of reference to, to place and things uh, and spaces and, uh, you know, it begins with the earth is the Lord's, that everything is the Lord's. Um, and then there's people ascending and there's people standing and then there's, of course, God coming in through through these ancient gates. There's a lot of movement in here. Uh, mm. But certainly uh, the concept of the earth being the Lord's, uh, the ancient Israelites had a, a different conception of what their temple meant. It wasn't really a um, a house for their God in the same sense that, that the temples of the neighbouring nations were. Uh, in the sense that it didn't provide a physical house for a physical God. Hmm. God's uh, influence and authority was not limited by geographical boundaries. And yet it did provide a, a physical place where his presence was manifest. I've heard it said that that's one of the differences between the Israelite temple in the Old Testament and temples of gods in surrounding countries, surrounding cultures. For many of the surrounding cultures, of course, the god was a thing carved, made of stone, made of wood. And the temples existed as a place where the people, through the priests, could look after the God. But in the Old Testament, the Israelite sanctuary is the place where God dwells amongst his people to look after his people. Yeah, that's very good. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting, the, the geographical influence of God or, or the, the extent to which his you know, authority covers... It, it's wonderful, isn't it, in the passage of um, Naaman, where Naaman asks to take a bit of dirt home with him, a donkey load of dirt. And presumably he he wanted the God of Israel to in some sense continue to be with him, and he thought it was necessary to take a bit of Israel home with him. And yet the earth and all that is in it uh, is the Lord's. He didn't need that geographical reference. But there's a there's an interesting contrast, isn't there? Uh, we start in verse 1 with the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. Uh, the world, all those who live it, he put it, put it on the seas. Uh, so he's, it's all his. Uh, and yet there is a particular place uh, to which he is to be let in. And there is a specific hill. Even before we get to, to God being let in, in verse 3, there is a hill of the Lord. But if the whole earth is the Lord's, then what, what does this hill of the Lord mean? 
It is interesting to note that hills are mentioned in the Bible quite a lot, and it's probably because hills are connected to places of worship. In the Old Testament, there's reference to the high places, sometimes when it's talking about uh, altars and, and idols that have been erected to false gods. And there's repeated reference throughout the Old Testament and the prophets to exalting Zion and lifting it up. It's almost as if there was a bit of an inferiority complex because the temple in Jerusalem wasn't on a very big hill and some of the neighboring cultures had temples on taller hills. I think even for us today, I know the experience of climbing a mountain when I'm bushwalking and the higher you get, the wider the view is. There is a really profound, amazing, euphoric feeling to be on the summit of the mountain with the fullness of the view it feels special. It sort of almost feels like you're close to the sky. So I can see why humans have found these places to have uh, spiritual significance. Well, of course, when Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac, it's on top of a hill. That's an interesting story all on, all on its own. And I think even in our cultures, we a lot of churches occupy the high points of cities, older churches in older medieval cities. So yeah, there is there is that sort of association, isn't there, of a hill being somehow special. The the other thing about ascending a hill, and it takes me twenty minutes to ride into work, and it takes me about forty minutes to get home because I live on top of a hill, and it's not an easy task uh, to get to the top of the hill. It's easy to roll down, uh, but then to get back up again uh, requires a substantial effort. So. What does that have to say about the uh, approaching God on a hill? Do you know there's a there's a wonderful parable. I don't know if either either of you have read it by Adrian Plass. Have you have you read the parable he he writes about uh, Snowdon, which I think is the highest mountain in the UK. I hope I'm getting my my geography right. But it's a really fascinating sort of twist on a conventional theme, the the faith versus works um, debate. And basically, the word of God um, comes down that things have been much too complicated lately. And there's been too much arguments about faith and works and disputes over exactly what process you have to go through to be saved. So he simplified it hugely. And basically, what you have to do is you have to climb Mount Snowden three times a week. <laughs> and, and that's enough. Then, then you're on the good ground. And um, there's some people who do it, who, who commit to it and are really energized. And there's other people who come up with all sorts of excuses. But I'd, I'd have to leave my job. You know, Snowden's in, I don't know where it is, Wales or Scotland or the Midlands or somewhere. My, I know nothing about British geography, obviously. But, you know, there's people come up with all sorts of ideas, you know, and, 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 and ideas why they couldn't possibly commit to climbing Mount Snowden three times a week. And all these excuses. And, you know, the question is put to them. But, you know, your, your ultimate salvation depends on this under the new system and basically what the parable shows is that not many people not as many people who strive after god's salvation wanted enough to seriously let it disrupt their lives well i accept the chastisement in that story i'm sure it applies significantly to my own walk i think one of the interesting things and this is from one of my favourite authors, Dallas Willard, uh, one of the things that he said was, grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. 
and uh, I think that's an interesting distinction to make. Well, there's there's an interesting relationship within this psalm to the concept of grace, because who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and who can stand in His holy place? It's He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift His soul up to an idol or swear by what's false. This sounds a bit worksy if you were going to buy into the grace works sort of scale. But then in verse 5, what does he get? He receives blessing from the Lord and vindication from God. Uh, in the King James Version says he receives salvation from God. So uh, this vindication that he receives is not something that he generates himself. And there's, there's a suggestion that this person is in, is in need, uh, has need and that God's meeting those needs. Mm. I, I, I do like the clean hands and pure hearts, that connection uh, between the guiltless actions and the, uh, uh, the pure heart. Um, the pure heart, indeed, that Jesus spoke about in the Beatitudes, that those who are pure in heart will see God. So perhaps they're the ones who make it to the top of the hill, even Jesus spoke about that uh, what what I thought of with the uh, what came to mind with the the clean hands and pure heart was was Lady Macbeth's speech when she's going mad racked by by guilt but specifically the thing that troubles her is I mean she and her husband have have ascended to the throne killing everyone who who's in their way and she's now plagued by vision of blood on her hands which she, no matter how often she washes them she can't get rid of but what she's afraid of specifically, if you read her speech, it's not that she is sorry for having killed so many people. It's that she's worried they might be found out. And you know, one could imagine someone who had done many wrong things reaching a point where they had a pure heart in the sense of they were contrite and anxious to make amends and keen for justice to be done. In other words, having a clean heart might not necessarily mean you've done everything right. And, uh, you know, Lady Macbeth is plagued. Uh, she says, uh, what need we fear, who knows it? That means knows about their, their crimes. When none can call our power to account, she's, she's really worried about being found out. So I, I'm not sure if this idea of having clean hands and a pure heart, you know, necessitates a perfect life or implies a perfect life. It's interesting. In the legal realm, the, uh, uh, the law of equity has a maximum, a, a maxim that says uh, he who comes to equity uh, must come with clean hands. Um, so you're not entitled to the aid of the court if you've engaged in some improper conduct, albeit not illegal conduct, but improper conduct in relation to the matter at hand. So I, I wonder in this case, uh, you come to God with clean hands, not with improper conduct. Where, where, where do we run with that? Because we certainly come to, he, he comes to us while we're still sinners, we certainly don't have our clean hands and we don't have our pure hearts. While we're his enemies. There might be another side to this coin. We, we've assumed that these verses are verses that restrict entry. These verses are verses, we better check before you walk in if you've got clean hands and pure hearts. And if you have, well, you're but otherwise you're out. But what happens if the intent is the opposite? What if the intent of the author is to say, well, look, you know, anyone can come in here. You just basically have to be sincere in your desire to meet with God and ceremonially clean, which is something that, you know, independent of wealth or status 
or positions of power. People, although not probably in the original uh, temple independent of gender. Although, I mean, there's the prophetess, isn't there, who lives in the temple at the time of Christ. So who knows exactly. But certainly, it's very likely that the psalmist is not thinking of these phrases as being restrictive. He's thinking of these phrases as being really accepting of people, independent of of social status or wealth or, or other things that normally divide society. Ooh, I really like that, Cam. And it actually connects back to the opening verses of this psalm about the whole earth. It's not just the whole earth, it's everyone who lives in the earth. So it's the it's the poor people, it's the rich people, it's the it's the every it's the powerful, it's the powerless. All these people are the lords. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just thinking that there's something in the there's there's a connection with that with verse six that such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, or such is the generation uh, of those who seek him. Uh, this is not uh, something that's restricted or limited. It's a, it's a company, it's a generation. There's many who uh, seek God and uh, who receive his blessing, are vindicated, uh, saved, and who have their hearts and hands cleansed, as David himself mm. asked of God, uh, creating me a clean heart. Um, yeah. He sought that pure heart for God to, to give that to him. And it's that motivation to, that, that seeking after God, to hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness, to ask and seek and you will find. Yeah. This is this what that psalm is directed at? Well, of course, people didn't go to the temple because they were saved necessarily. They didn't. They didn't go there confident that that God would be happy to meet them and and proud of everything they'd done. The temple was the center for the sin sacrifices, um, daily sacrifices, special you know, day of atonement, all these events, which were specifically there because the people had not done everything that that God had wanted them to do. So um, I think that this this idea of uh, I, I think this idea is quite nuanced, and and of course what the people receive who turn up with clean hands and pure heart, whatever it is, is they receive vindication from God or or, or salvation from God, as the King James version says. I think the clean hands and a pure heart is deserving of lots of lots of thought. We should obviously all aspire to clean hands and pure heart. I think that sometimes debates about our salvation are constrained to uh, entirely to eternal salvation. And I know that um, uh, Philip Yancey writes in many of his books about uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous group and people who live with an addiction, a substance addiction, have a very imminent sense of a need of salvation. And I wonder when we focus perhaps on our, on our eternal salvation... We're saying, look, I know technically, in, in according to the fine print, I don't quite live up to everything that God says, so he's going to have to sort that out in the end. But let's face it, I'm doing pretty well day to day, aren't I? Um, mm. Most most things are going pretty well. So so let's focus on on this far off and distant, you know, reckoning that's going to happen, as opposed to saying, well, I need salvation right now. Uh, my uh, youngest son, I hopped out of the car this morning and. 
said to the boys, you know, Daddy loves you lots, hopped out of the car and went out, out of the car. And my wife, Melissa, told me tonight, she said, after you left the car, Matthew, who's age three, said, Mummy, but Daddy doesn't always love me. Sometimes he gets cross, which means I've obviously failed in some sense to communicate, you know, clearly to Matthew. Being irritable with my kids when I'm hungry and it's been a busy day at school and it's freezing cold and just everything's going wrong and it's one of those days or when they're being irritating you know being able to control myself in in those situations perhaps my my temper or irritableness is something that i need salvation from right now indeed um can jesus invitation and his entire message uh was that it is the eternal life is here now that the kingdom of god is here and available now. I don't think you should beat yourself up about being irritable occasionally. Especially, Ken, when this same three-year-old wakes up in the middle of the night screaming (laughs) that he wants to go to Uncle Ken Stanton's house because Uncle Ken Stanton has cool trains. (laughs) And it's it's three o'clock in the morning and he's inconsolable. This is the thing, though, isn't it? Having, Having a pure heart is having a pure heart saying to God, do you know what, God, I welcome your judgments. Mm. In the sense that in specific moments when I'm when I am failing to exercise my own self-control or when I delude myself, you know, I do things that are wrong. But at the very core, I, I really do want you involved in my life and I, I want I want your input. Mm. I want your judgment. Your judgment is something that I need in my life to help me distinguish the things I'm doing wrong, to help me live a better life. Is it that the people who survived the final judgment, who, who passed the final judgment, are the people who have welcomed God's judgment on a regular, continual basis? Is that part of what it means? You know, people who come to the temple, these people who have clean hands and a pure heart, are people who, are, who have come to participate in ceremonies whose central sort of core uh, message is that they are, have not done things right. Mm. I think we can, we can get a little too... Uh, caught up in being proud of how we so readily recognize our sin um, and thereby fall into another uh, sin so that uh, I think the focus on the on our unworthiness uh, is not always a healthy thing uh, yes we recognize that uh, uh, we miss the mark of course we do but with God all things are possible even a rich person can go through the eye of the needle. Uh, so even a camel can go through the eye of the needle and a rich person can be saved. Mm. Uh, these these impossible things. And I, and I think we do well to focus on the all that is in the earth is God's. And uh, while he's not a God to be trifled with, uh, he is a God who has the power, the will and the desire to save. One last anecdote that came to mind about clean hands, and this features a famous mathematician so definitely deserving of of comment. Uh, The gentleman who invented logarithms, I think his name was Napier, was hugely feared by his contemporaries because he was so smart. He he devised weapons of war. He envisaged a submarine in the 1600s and drew plans for one. He was a real sort of visionary crazy. He was working on a weapon. Now, none of these weapons, incidentally, he wouldn't allow anyone to actually build a prototype because he was terrified that they might work and he didn't want to support the military activities 
basically. He was a, essentially pacifist, but his mind worked in interesting ways. Apparently, he was working on a device that would kill every cow in a mile's radius. But the story about clean hands is once he had a servant who was stealing from him, and he this he could cook up ideas like any, everyone was terrified. They, they everyone believed what he said because he was just so smart. And he lined his servants up, and he knew that one of them was stealing from him. And he said, "I tell you what, I'm going to find out who's stealing this from me. You have to walk into the barn and pat my rooster. This rooster is a truth-telling rooster. And when when the thief pats the back of this rooster, it will crow." So he sent them all in. And as they came out the other side, he inspected their hands because he had put soot on the back of the rooster. And there was only one servant who'd been afraid to pat the rooster. And he was the thief. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Wisdom in that. So in that case, in that case, Cam, it's it's only those with dirty hands who have a pure heart. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Should we let's move on to the last bit then? And, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, but l- lift up your heads, O gates. I-, I wondered how does one lift up one's head, uh, whether one's a gate or not. Uh, but clearly, poetic language. It's uh, looking. Look, I- I've I often find myself walking around the streets of Launceston at lunchtime, pondering uh, a difficult problem looking at the ground, uh, and then yeah. uh, somebody will say, oh, I saw you the other day, but you didn't see me uh, because I wasn't looking up. I'd, I'd missed it. Uh, so I'd missed the opportunity to interact because I, I had my head down. Uh, this is inviting me to do something different. Mm. Yeah. I like it. There's there's an almost exact repetition here of, of a phrase. It's like a refrain. There's a real energy and poetry in this to me it's it's the sort of well the esv does render lift up your head o gates with an exclamation mark on the end and then down in verse eight the lord mighty in battle with another exclamation mark and at the end of the psalm he is the king of glory with an exclamation mark it it is words in a way that feels natural to to have that exclamation punctuation and emphasis doesn't it we don't so much celebrate battle Obviously, this is, again, a little window into into a slightly different time and place and culture. Battle was very much a, a, a normal state of affairs. In fact, in the start of David and Goliath, which was the story we, we discussed in the last two episodes, it opens with the phrase that it was spring... No, not David and Goliath. David and Bathsheba begins with the phrase, it was springtime, the time of year when kings went to war. Mm. Um, so it was sort of like the annual sport. It was like the football. Or, or perhaps is football like going to war? <laughs> I wonder whether you're right about that we, we, we're not, we don't celebrate battle. We certainly celebrate competition. Cooking can, MasterChef. Everything is more dramatic if it's a competition. The Australian cartoonist Michael Lunig observed once that Nero was very foolish to fiddle while Rome burned. Um, he was he was rightly denounced for this. If it had been half smart, he would have organised a fiddling competition. Then no one would have cared if Rome was burning or not. They'd be too taken up in the competition. Yeah. We don't necessarily celebrate battle. We perhaps lament it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what would we replace it with? I mean, at the moment, you might say the Lord... Uh, effective in finding vaccines. Uh, I don't know. Who who, who do we venerate? Uh, what qualities? Strong and mighty in economic recovery. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Mighty in employment. Yeah. But we still, having said that, we the the imagery, the battle imagery is one that that we have reappropriated for for a different purpose. Particularly, Adventists really like this idea of a great con- controversy, an invisible battle, that we are at all times soldiers on duty, that we know not when we might be required to take a risk for for right, and for good, and for uh, improving the world, and for protecting the vulnerable. That in all our ways we do we do face challenges, and uh, there is a sense in which the metaphor of a soldier is is still a valuable one. Well, it's not just the soldier. Uh, I mean, we I think that we actually should pause and remember the imagery here is the king. Who is this king of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty, and mightily mighty in battle? The imagery of king is utterly distorted for us because for us there are some kings and queens there are some monarchies that exist around the world but by and large they're they're somewhat they're almost irrelevant for the for the flow of social and political energy in most countries where where they still exist they have I mean, we don't need to enter into the Republican versus monarchy debate here necessarily. They have some value. That's why they still they still exist. But the point I'm making is that they, in all of the forms that they currently exist in for us to compare to, uh, they are utterly unlike what a king would represent in the ancient cultures such as the Psalms and, and all of the Bible times. Well, I think you've touched on a, a good point there, Locke. I think that God's vision for a king, for Israel, was also unlike the vision of, of kings in, in contemporary nations. Because, because you know, the kings uh, were not just powerful people. They, they were very close to deity. Uh, you think of Nebuchadnezzar uh, looking at Babylon and saying, look at all these wonderful things that I have done. He hadn't laid a brick. It had all been done by slaves and people that he'd conquered. But he says, "Look at this city that that you know that I've done." There's the Darius incident where he commands that people pray to him. There's the Egyptian pharaohs, um, where it's very much, a, you know, it would be impossible to defend the divine right of kings as an idea from the Israelite kings. Mm. God establishes Saul, gets rid of him. It's David. Kings are always being denounced. Um, God's working against them in battle when it comes to um, Ahab. When it comes to Ahab, he's he's told more or less that God's not with him and that he shouldn't go to battle, uh, and he does anyway. And he ends up being killed. So, I think that that the same things we find uncomfortable about kingship as sort of a sole focal authority point, centered and embedded in one person, are the same things that God finds uncomfortable and one of the reasons we find them uncomfortable is because our cultures emerged from a judeo-christian background Mm. some of the early people who argued against the divine right of kings argued it from biblical you know texts look that's true i wonder whether or not it's even the, the, the distance between the king of kings the king of glory um uh, and our understanding of authority, and you use that word, is even greater because one of the difficulties that I think with our uh, society is that we simply do not recognise any authority other than uh, the uh, desire of the individual. So that we 
we, we, we don't really have any concept of authority, let alone a king of glory. Indeed, we see uh, authority, the exercise of power, as uh, being anathema to the right of self-determination, unconstrained uh, of for, for the individual in uh, our modern liberal societies. Uh, so we, we, we just have no concept of uh, authority, let alone kingship. Yeah. It's the phrase here um, that the king of glory may come in, in verse 7, that that is part of what gives me the impression that what's going on here is a a ceremonial sort of opening, a, a significant event rather than just a, the everyday in terms of the life and times and culture and religious experience of the author of this psalm. You know, I am picturing a great uh, a procession. Uh, there's there's perhaps a large gate. Maybe it's not a large gate like a city gate. Maybe it's a large door to a to a temple, to a sanctuary. But in any case, there is, in my mind, there's a procession coming up to it, a, a person of authority essentially asking, you know, open open the gates that the King of Glory may come in. And if they are indeed bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, then the Ark of the Covenant is their real focal point for the physical presence of God, then it becomes even more powerful, this, this image of open up, we're coming in, they don't really need to ask for the doors to be open. There's an enormous procession of them. Everyone knows what's meant to happen. But it's the procedure, it's the tradition, it's the ritual of of asking for the doors to be opened. And then there's almost this, and it's repeated, who is this king of glory? That's verse 8 and verse 10. So there's a, there's a, a discussion, a conversation here that might go back in, in in a casual colloquial sense this would be exactly the conversation you'd have when a stranger comes and knocks on the gate and they say open up and the gatekeeper says who is it except here there's none of the sense that that's really the intent of the conversation to me it's all a kind of a, a scripted back and forth that is that is loosely based on those kinds of interactions at a gate but is really being constructed for emphasis and the emphasis is the glory of this king, of the Lord. There are two uh, things that spring to my mind as you describe it in that way, uh, Lachlan, and um, one of them is a, a wedding ceremony. The uh, you know people come in and then and then the door opens and uh, uh, depending on which order you do it, but there's you know the bride comes in uh, uh, to the fanfare, the processional, uh, so that. You know, the, the door opens and there's the the beauty presented. Mm, mm. Um, so that's 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 one sort of modern uh, take on it. Um, uh, and the other the other is that uh, th th this repetition has the feel of uh, what a responsive reading should be, not what it often seems to be with a, a bland single presenter and a and a reluctant uh, response by the congregation. But but this is got the picture of a responsive reading as as it was meant to be, uh, with life and vigour. Mm -hmm. I think that this, uh, one reason why I like this psalm is, is it requires very little modification, really, to make it palatable to, to modern um, readers. Um, it's very easy to take, to see these, what I think you're right, Locke, it's a celebration of, of God's temple and... Um, 
God's uh, workings in a particular people at a particular time and see the very universal ideas around it. I mean, it begins with the reference of creation. What's the correct context from which we should view the world? Well, the correct context is the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it, including me and including the people around me. It was established by God. So who that being so, if that's the way the world really is, ought we not have a desire to know this God, the person who, or the, the being that set it all up, everything that we see around us, who set us up in actuality? So, well, who gets to? Well, the requirements are clean hands and a pure heart, which I read as honest intention. You're not trying to cozy up to God to, to get favours from him. You're not trying to do it to make yourself look good in front of other people at church. Um, there's no ulterior motive here. If you really want to approach God, then that's the, that's the requirement. And this idea of not swearing by an idol speaks of that notion of authenticity. Uh, what do we get? We receive blessings from God. And we can then in turn invite him into our lives. So this idea of lift up your heads, O you gates, in that sense, we are those gates. And uh, the king of glory comes in and the king is strong, mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We, we still use metaphors of, of God fighting our battles for us. So I, I think that, that imagery still speaks very strongly. And, you know, this is a really sort of neat, broad brushstroke painting about how the world is um, how we ought to respond, and how God has promised to respond to us. Cam, I think that's a fantastic summary of this psalm. It's interesting, Lachlan, uh, sorry, Cam, that you um, uh, tie this back to the story of creation. Um, at the risk of uh, being somewhat controversial, there is, of course, uh, John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, in which he uh, says that the literal uh, reading uh, of Genesis 1 is uh, God entering his temple, um, perhaps something that we see here in Psalm 24. Yeah, well, uh, is there any suggestions of, of what we should do next? Now, this is our 13th episode, and uh, in as much as all good discussions come in 13 episodes in the Adventist Church, we'd be justified in, in leaving the Psalms for a bit. Well, not only is it our 13th episode, but this is being published at the same time as the 13th and final week of the second quarter Sabbath school pamphlet. So that means that next week we're into a new quarter and that could be an opportunity for us to try something a bit different, maybe even slightly more closely connected to the Sabbath school pamphlet. I suggest we think about it and we encourage all, any listeners with good ideas and good suggestions to contact us on Sabbath school from home at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you would like to get out of this podcast going forward. In any case, we definitely will have another episode next week, either on more Psalms or a slight topic shift. So we look forward to you joining us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>